Willkommen in Berlin. Hello and welcome to Berlin. This is City Breaks Berlin, episode 15, Charlottenburg Palace. I'm Marion Jones. Today then we're off to Royal Berlin, to the summer palace of the family which ruled Berlin for five centuries, 1415 to 1918, the Hohenzollerns. It's one of those palaces like Versailles, like Schönbrunn in Vienna, which started life as a country palace, but which has gradually been subsumed into the suburbs. Which is sort of a good thing, because it means it's easy to get there. Indeed, it's a few minutes' walk, I'd say somewhere between five and ten minutes' walk, from two different U-Bahn stations, Richard Wagnerplatz, or Richard Wagnerplatz, if you prefer him a bit more anglicised, and the other one then is Sophie Charlotte Platz in English, Sophia Charlotte Platz in German. And it does make for a lovely morning or even whole day out. Think splendid palace interiors, lovely grounds, lots of art and history, and interesting stories behind the scenes of the people who lived there. I'm going to pick out three of those particularly for this episode, but before we do that, perhaps a little potted history of the palace itself, which began life in 1699, built on the orders of the Elector of Brandenburg, who had married one Sophie Charlotte, sister of George I of England, and wanted to give her a present to mark the occasion, and he chose an estate just outside the city and had the palace built for her. It became her retreat, what she called the Court of the Muses. But it's a tragic story, really, because only six years after the palace had been built for her, Sophie Charlotte died rather unexpectedly. She was only in her thirties. And her distraught husband then named the palace after her, Charlottenburg. And Sophie Charlotte is the first of the three personalities I'll be coming back to in a minute. The second one is Frederick the Great. Yes, him, he gets everywhere. During his reign, from 1740 onwards, He had a new wing built here, so he's very connected with the palace too. And the third story I want to tell is that of Louisa, who was married to a later king, Friedrich Wilhelm III, and who was a very much loved queen, but who also died tragically in 1810 when she was only 34. Charlottenburg was extensively used by the king who followed Friedrich Wilhelm III, called, you've guessed it, Friedrich Wilhelm IV, but after him, Really, it became less and less a centre used by the royal family, especially after the beginning of the German Empire, so that was 1871. From then on, it was used really more intermittently for special events. For example, in 1936, the Nazis came here for one of their big extravaganzas as part of the Olympic celebrations. And you can probably guess the rest of the 20th century history, bombed in the 1940s by the RAF, rebuilt then from the 1950s onwards and taken over by the state and open to tourists. So then, let's wind back to the days of the first of the three personalities I wanted to talk about, Sophie Charlotte, the queen after whom Charlottenburg was named. If you go to visit today, you'll notice that part of the palace is known as the Altus Schloss, the old part of the palace, and that really is the section connected with her. Who was she? Well, there's a painting of her on display in one of the rooms, described in the guidebook as follows. She has big, gentle eyes, wonderfully thick black hair, eyebrows looking as if they've been drawn, a well-proportioned nose, incarnadine lips, I think that's code for red, very good teeth and a lively complexion. So yes, she was beautiful. She was also very clever. German was her native tongue, of course, but she spoke fluent French, Italian and English. 
and she had a bit of a habit of bringing the philosophers of the day to the palace because she loved to discuss and debate. Adolf Menzel, for example, said that conversations with Sophie Charlotte inspired one of his major works. She had asked him the question, how can a loving God permit such evil in the world? And I'm guessing his answer began with, well, it's complicated. And he went on to write a book in answer to that question, all stemming apparently from his conversations with her. Gottfried Leibniz, another German philosopher, had been a tutor to Sophie Charlotte when she was a child, and when she grew up and came to Berlin, she summoned him to the court. More discussion, more debate, and together they founded the Academy of Sciences. She was musical too. She played the harpsichord herself. You can see one of her harpsichords here, a beautiful white instrument decorated with the fashionable chinoiserie-style painting. She loved to sing. Apparently she loved Italian opera above all. And she invited composers to the court as well. Occasionally one of them, the example I read was Corelli, would dedicate a sonata to her. And she referred to her court as the Court of the Muses. So really a centre for the arts, for music, for poetry. A really very particular atmosphere, described in the guidebook as follows. The daily routine of Sophia Charlotte's predominantly youthful courtiers and guests was characterised by relaxed parties, balls, garden festivals and masquerades. She would also engage in discussion of the philosophical topics of the day with renowned scholars and theologians. You can go round her part of the palace and see splendid rooms with heavy Damascan brocade wall hangings, carved gilt furniture, and in something called the Golden Cabinet Room, her lacquer writing desk, a beautiful little decorated wooden model with lots of drawers and hidey holes. But very sadly, in 1705, she died, I think, of influenza at the age of only 36. And again, in the guidebook, this is referred to, quote, the lights went out on the cultural life at the palace. But this was the moment then when the palace was renamed Charlottenburg by her husband. This part of the palace contains his staterooms too that you can visit, 13 rooms in total, an enfilade, so a whole row, one after the other, when the nearer you get to the audience room, the fancier everything gets. So you'll pass through the red chamber, yep, red damask wallpaper everywhere, lots of gold braid, look around the bottom of the floor and you'll find that all the base panels are decorated with Prussian eagles. You'll go through the palace chapel. It was important, of course, to link the throne and the church. And for me, the most memorable room of the whole 13 was the porcelain cabinet room. An absolute extravagant abundance of porcelain in all sorts of cabinets, piled floor to ceiling, blue and white decor dripping with gold and full, full, full of porcelain of every size and description. Other things to look out for as you wander through, they have the gold frames of their two crowns, his and hers if you like, and a nice little detail in the description which I enjoyed is the fact that they used to be decorated with precious stones and pearls and diamonds and whatnot, but these had all been removed to be reused, and in that process somehow they got lost. But there is a sceptre there with a gold diamond-studded top, the absolute crowning glory of which is a magnificent ruby given once by Tsar Peter I of Russia. You'll see portraits of Frederick and Sophie Charlotte too on your way through this bit of the palace. Individual portraits of both of them and a strange portrait of three kings. So that's Frederick himself and two visiting kings, 
Elector August of Saxony, who later became the King of Poland, who knew, and King Frederick IV of Denmark. And what's odd about it is that they're standing in a little circle, holding hands, looking for all the world as if they're just about to indulge in, I don't know, ring-a-ring-a-roses or something. Very odd. So Frederick and Sophie Charlotte were the royal couple who really first made their mark on Charlottenburg, had it built and made it quite a centre, somewhere people were talking about, wanted to visit. And then, of course, when it came to a tragic end, that probably heightened its interest for others. Going to miss out a couple of kings then and go straight on to Frederick the Great. There's quite a lot about him in earlier episodes, but he has to be mentioned here because he too is very connected with the palace, although possibly not in the way you're thinking. We know that the day after his father died, so immediately when he himself became king, he visited Charlottenburg. And a mere month later, he had commissioned an architect to do things to it. He wanted it extended, elaborated, generally fancied up. This was in the period of his life when he was off being a warrior king, fighting wars. But he never forgot his building projects at home. He was always writing to his architect saying things like, I want a description of each and every astragal at Charlottenburg. Four quarto pages. That would give me a lot of pleasure. And on another occasion, referring to Charlottenburg and to the Opera House, which he was also having built in central Berlin at the same time, he wrote, I am like a child in these things. They are my toys and I amuse myself with them. So with all that pressure, the poor architect had to rush on with the job and quite soon on one of his trips back to Berlin, Frederick was able to organise a formal opening for his private apartments at Charlottenburg. Quite a mix of a building really because the facade was very classic, but the insides Frederick's favourite style, Rococo. Here's the author Tim Blanning who wrote a biography of Frederick the Great on this topic. Particularly striking was the enormous reception room, later known as the Golden Gallery, 42 metres long and stretching right across the building. It need hardly be added that there was also a music room, an elegant combination of white and grey panelled walls and a gilded ceiling. More surprisingly, this is the gossipy bit, more surprisingly, a large suite of rooms was reserved on the ground floor for the Queen, although she never used them. She was refused an invitation to attend the celebrations marking the completion of the new wing. That side of the story is one of the strange things about Frederick. I'll come back to that in a minute. And the other thing is that after all this work, expense, effort, in fact, he was rarely at Charlottenburg. He much preferred his other palace, Sans Souci, at Potsdam. And if you average it out, I think the number of visits he made to Charlottenburg during the course of his reign add up to one, possibly two visits a year. But he has to be mentioned because he had such a major effect on what there is that you can see today, this stupendous fancy new wing that he had built. So if you go through it, you'll see some of the rooms I've already mentioned, the Golden Gallery, and also his library. He was a great reader and thinker, friend of the philosopher Voltaire, although it was really to Potsdam that he invited Voltaire to stay, usually. But if he was ever at Charlottenburg, he didn't need a library to retreat to. So here it is, pale green and silver decor. Originally it had a very fancy painted ceiling, done by a specially commissioned artist, although that, in fact, was destroyed during the war. Still there is a collection of classical busts lining both sides of the room and giving out that air of intellectual endeavour that he was aiming for. He had a study too, not just a library, and the studies are sort of white and gold affair, more artist works in there. 
And, of course, of course, he had a concert room. You might remember from a previous episode, he was very musical, played the flute himself, liked to give concerts, liked to invite musicians to play here. One of the portraits in the room is of the dancer, Barbarina, who had starred at the Opera House, which he had built on Unted in Linden. He liked to collect art, and you'll see here quite a number of paintings by the French painter, Watteau. More amusingly, you will also see his collection of snuff boxes, of which he apparently had about 300. And they weren't any old little tin box, they were decorated with precious stones. Look out particularly for the Charlottenburg Golden Snuff Box, which is diamond encrusted and has a little portrait of himself on it. He had it made apparently to gift to a visiting prince. And, of course, there is lots and lots of porcelain. He was really into porcelain. He was always commissioning new dinner services. Eventually he had his own porcelain factory set up. Keep a look out on the porcelain for the initials KPM. The K stands for Königliche, Royal. The P stands for Porcelain, Porcelain. I'm not sure what the M stands for, because the German for factory starts with an F. But anyway, if you see those letters KPM, you are looking at Royal Porcelain commissioned by Frederick the Great and made in his own factory. Among the other magnificent rooms then, apart from the Golden Gallery, described, by the way, in the guidebook as a splendid ballroom, a green and gold dream garden. There is also the silver room, the silver vault as it's called, full of long tables, absolutely laden with gold and silver and glass and, yes, of course, porcelain, where you will learn that we have no fewer than a hundred table services, all different, from Frederick's original collection. A vivid reminder, as the guidebook puts it, of the magnificence of dining at court. And should you be wondering what he ate off all this porcelain, I have in front of me a menu from the 23rd of October 1780, giving a list of the food to be served that evening, along with a little note saying that this particular menu had been put together by Frederick himself. So, guests were served salsify soup, partridge wings glazed with artichokes and peas, Roman pastry, larks, veal escalops in the English manner. So you can build up quite a picture of Frederick's preferred lifestyle and the luxury he indulged in. You'll have noticed, perhaps, not much mention of his wife, and that is quite a story. And her name, at least before she married, was quite a mouthful. Here goes. Duchess Elizabeth Christine of Brunswick Wolfenbüttel Bevern. I think we'll stick with Elizabeth, who was married to Frederick when she was only 17. The marriage was arranged by both their fathers and got off to not a great start. We are told that on the wedding night, for example, Frederick spent what I have seen described as a reluctant hour with his new wife, and then went walkabout, presumably in the palace grounds, for the rest of the night. His father liked his new daughter-in-law very much. Frederick made the most of this fact. Whenever he was away, he used to write to her to request that she ask his father for whatever he wanted at the time, money, permission to do this and that, etc., Frederick was away quite a lot. He seemed to be content to leave a lot of areas of running of the palace to his wife. She would receive foreign princes and ambassadors on their behalf, do lots of entertaining, organise receptions, etc., most of which Frederick himself failed to attend. As they grew apart, he gave her a different palace to go and live in, one called Schönhausen in North Berlin. He never visited her there, she was never invited to Sans Souci, which is where he spent most of his time, and basically Frederick seemed quite happy 
if he more or less never saw his wife. In a 20-year period from 1740, he's said to have been present at her birthday celebration only twice, and the story circulated that on one occasion in 1763, when Frederick saw Elizabeth for the first time in six years, he had only one comment to make, and that was, Madame has grown quite fat. There's no record of him having had other female lovers. There is quite a lot of evidence that he was probably gay. History books note that although he was distinctly uninterested in her as a person, he did demand that she should be respected as queen. And in fact, she got the last word because he died ten years or so before she did, and she became queen dowager at that, on that occasion, and continued to play an influential role at the court for the rest of her life. And the third story connected to Charlottenburg I want to tell is that of Louisa, wife of Friedrich Wilhelm III, who reigned from 1797 for just over 40 years. Unlike Frederick the Great, Friedrich Wilhelm III loved Charlottenburg, as did Louisa, and gradually it became the case that the court revolved around her. She was hugely popular. The running of Friedrich Wilhelm III and Louisa's court was centred around a big happy family, in which she played, of course, an absolutely central role. So, who was she? She had originally been the Duchess Louise of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. She, too, was married at the age of 17. A much happier affair, much more of a love match. Again, their fathers had arranged their meetings, but it's said that Louisa made such a charming impression on Friedrich Wilhelm that he immediately decided to marry her. And when she arrived in Berlin, she made an immediate impression and became soon very popular indeed. It is said that en route to the palace on her very first day in the city, she stopped to pick up and kiss a child, which was very much against protocol. But the people loved it, and she was a, a big hit straight away. This act was described, in fact, by a Prussian writer of the time as follows. The arrival of the angelic princess spreads over these days a noble splendour. All hearts go out to meet her, and her grace and goodness leaves no one unblessed. Lots of children followed. Sadly, the first was stillborn, but after that came nine healthy children. Obviously, the oldest son was another Friedrich Wilhelm, Frederick William, and when, a few years after their marriage, Friedrich Wilhelm became king, both he and Louisa set off on a tour of the country. Again, that was unusual. Queens didn't normally accompany their husbands. And again, she was immediately popular. She was clever too, a great reader. She loved history and poetry and German literature in general. And she began to play a role in the court, dealing with senior ministers. To the extent that when, in 1806, the disastrous war they were fighting came to an end, Napoleon occupied Berlin, Louisa was part of the delegation sent to negotiate with him. And she gave it to him straight. For God's sake, no shameful peace. Prussia should at least not go down without honour, she said. She made a point of requesting a private interview with Napoleon, who was said to be very impressed by her. He refused to grant the concessions she wanted, but he did remark that Louisa was, quote, the only real man in Prussia. There followed a difficult phase of her life. They returned to Charlottenburg to find that Napoleon and his commanders had ransacked Charlottenburg, left it in a terrible state, stolen much of the artwork. But even in these circumstances, Louisa gained praise for her reaction. Here's what one of the priests had to say. Our dear Queen is far from joyful, but her seriousness has a quiet serenity. Her eyes have lost their former sparkle, and one sees that they have wept much and still weep. 
only a few years later, in 1810, when she was only 36, Queen Louisa died from an unidentified illness and everyone was distraught. She was buried in the garden of Charlottenburg Palace and a mausoleum built over the grave to honour her. When her husband Friedrich Wilhelm died himself, 30 years later, he was buried by her side. And historians seem to have been writing praise of her ever since, calling her the soul of national virtue, for example, saying that she was Prussian nationalism personified. And here's a slightly longer quote, saying that Louisa was a female celebrity who in the mind of the public combined virtue, modesty and sovereign grace with kindness and sex appeal, and whose early death in 1810, at the age of only 34, preserved her youth in the memory of posterity. There are glimpses of Louisa to be found inside the palace, her portrait, for example, painted when she was 26, her study, decorated with Chinese silk wall hangings and containing her mahogany writing desk. You can visit her dressing room, all decorated in East Indian chintz. And interestingly, when you pass through her husband's antechamber, you may notice that there's a portrait of Napoleon hanging on the wall. But it is the mausoleum outside in the grounds that is really the main place to remember her. And the grounds are the other thing you should not miss because they are extensive and beautiful. As with lots of these palaces, you've got the formal gardens just in front and behind the palace, leading out then towards the countryside. In this case, running down the banks of the River Spree. You can, by the way, arrive at Charlottenburg by boat. And in that further distant part, you'll find woods, a carp lake, a canal, meandering pathways. You'll come across occasional statues and flower beds. And the garden itself was designed initially in the 17th century by Sophie Charlotte, so the first queen who occupied the palace. It was designed as a French-style formal garden, modelled on what else? Versailles. There's an orangery where oranges and lemons used to be grown, the scene of summertime festivities when it would be lit up by 1,200 candles. There's a lovely terrace along the palace front, full of statues and potted plants, and dotted around the grounds, three sites that people tend to look out for. The first one is the mausoleum, built by Friedrich Wilhelm III for the tomb of his wife, Louisa, sited on what was apparently her favourite spot in the garden, and with a very moving marble statue of her lying at rest, looking really as if she's just fallen asleep. And there's a very moving photograph taken in July 1870, on the 60th anniversary of Louisa's death, just as Germany was yet again about to go to war with France, and the photograph shows her son, King Wilhelm, as an elderly man, with the weight of all this responsibility on his shoulders, and he's sitting, looking at the statue of his mother, described in the guidebook as being, quote, deep in contemplation, next to the sarcophagus of the Queen, praying for strength in the impending campaign. There is also in the grounds a statue of Louisa, as her husband wished her to be remembered, which was commissioned by him about six years after she died. Also to look out for in the grounds is a building called the Neue Pavillon, so the new pavilion, and this is connected to Louisa and her husband as well. Friedrich Wilhelm was totally distraught after she died. He found it very difficult to be in the wing where they had shared their apartments, and he remained unmarried for 14 years, until in 1824 he did remarry Augusta of Harach, 
and he commissioned this building to be built in the grounds, I think perhaps so they would have a separate space somewhere to call their own, which wasn't full of memories of Louisa. He got the best architect of the day, Schinkel, to design it, telling him that what he wanted was a mini summer palace. It is a beautiful building, square fronts. It's sort of cubed in shape, really. Italian in style, we think because Friedrich Wilhelm had just been on a trip to Italy and was very taken with all that he had seen. And inside you'll find the various rooms that they used and lots of paintings, including portraits of Friedrich Wilhelm and Augusta and a collection of other paintings by Schinkel and Caspar David Friedrich. It's quite near the main palace building and definitely worth popping in, I'd say. And then thirdly, the Belvedere, built by the Friedrich Wilhelm who came before the third, i.e. Friedrich Wilhelm II, who said he wanted a building from which he could look out over views of his land. So this pretty little pale green and white building was put up. Three stories, a splendid cupola. Worth a look if you get that far. But definitely, definitely don't miss the grounds altogether. They are, I think, just as beautiful as the palace itself. So then, that is Schloss Charlottenburg, the Palace of Charlottenburg. Definitely a good day out, a symbol of bygone eras, of Prussia, of the German Empire, a place connected to the stories of the people I've particularly mentioned, Sophie Charlotte, for whom it was built and after whom it was named, Frederick the Great, who had such an impact on the building which you visit today, but whose actual connection with it was slightly underwhelming, and Queen Louisa, the stunningly beautiful, very popular queen who died so young and whose mausoleum in the grounds is one of the most visited parts of the palace. It would be quite easy to miss out Charlottenburg because it's not bang in the centre of the city, but it really isn't very difficult to get there. Just hop on a U2 underground line out to one of the two nearest stops, but take a map because it is a 10-minute walk or so from either of them. If you're in Berlin for several days and want a little bit away from the hustle and bustle, I would suggest that Charlottenburg, with its lovely grounds, is one of the places where you can find that. As, in fact, is the topic of the next episode I'm planning, which is going to be called A Day at the Lakes. Berlin is surrounded by various lovely lakes which make good outings, and I'm going to pick out one or two places it's nice to visit on such an excursion and tell some of the stories behind them. So I hope you'll be able to join me for that. For the moment, thank you very much for listening. And let's finish in German, what else, with that message. Thank you. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören. And of course, with the special form of goodbye that works for audio, rather than when you're going to see someone again. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>